Greetings once again, listening friends, and welcome back to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. As you'll know, if you're a regular, this is our attempt to survey some of the best of the ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Victorian pastor, preacher, and evangelist, a man gifted by God for the exaltation of Christ, and therefore a man who does us good in our souls as Christians, as well as helping us if we're preachers and teachers of the word in our own right. Each week we work our way through the sermons that were printed, first of all in the new Park Street pulpit, and then in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. We're into the 19th volume of the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit at the moment, and this week we're reading sermons 1095 to 1101. Then each week a featured sermon is what we concentrate on, Uh, so that we can see something of the representative excellence and breadth of Spurgeon's ministry. Uh, And all of this is made possible in large measure by our friends at Media Gratii, and you can find them and their resources available at mediagratii.org, where you can go to the podcasts page and find this podcast together with others and sign up for a weekly newsletter where we'll send out that featured sermon so that you can read it with us if you can't follow along each day. If you can follow along each day, or if you'd like to do so, then please find us on X at Reading Spurgeon, where you'll see usually daily quotes and other bits of news and uh, information on what we're reading in any given week. So with all that said and all that out of the way, let's turn to this week's featured sermon, 1097 in the sequence, delivered undated, in the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit, but uh, identified as having been preached at the tabernacle itself. Uh, Its title is Good Cause for Great Zeal, and the text is Ezra 4, verse 14. Now, because we have maintenance from the king's palace, and it was not meet or fit for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore have we sent and certified the king. And this may be one of those sermons where you're saying, Okay, what's Spurgeon going to get out of that? Uh, Well, let's see, because as so often, he'll take the basic principle of this text and then he will apply it spiritually to God's people. He uh, is quite uh, gifted at this. I don't think he's uh, playing fast and loose with the text, but he gives us a paragraph where he explains to us what he calls the facts of the case, how under Zerubbabel, the Jews who'd returned from Babylon commenced to rebuild Jerusalem. He explains how the people in the land then had written to Artaxerxes, the king at the time, to tell him that he didn't understand that those troublesome Jews, uh, who had always been a difficult people, were now uh, trying to cause trouble again. And in writing that letter, they showed themselves wise in their generation, quite canny and cunning, because they told the king that they were moved by gratitude to write to him. And Spurgeon says that was not the case. That was a a falsehood, the language of deceit that hypocrites were using to cover their tracks. But this is what he wants to do. Let me take these words right out of those black mouths and put them into my own and yours. They will suit us well if we turn them to the great king of kings. Now, I've said Spurgeon is good at doing this. I don't think he's playing fast and loose with the text. 
Um, but this might be something that we'd want to do at least carefully uh, rather than uh, randomly. What he's doing is, is basically saying, look, that the text is providing a principle. And that principle is that should it be true, it would be proper to say that we have received blessing from the king and therefore we are concerned for the king's honour. And it's for that reason that we have notified the king of what is going on. Spurgeon's saying that's a reasonable principle. It shouldn't be used deceitfully. It can be a, a sort of a motive and concern that should animate the hearts and the mouths of God's people. And that's how I want to use it. So uh, you could say, is he really preaching the text? Uh, he understands it in its context. He's uh, taken it uh, in its basic sense. And he's saying, now leech out all the hypocrisy and deceit. Couldn't we use this language concerning our King, Jesus Christ? Couldn't we use this language concerning the honor of the living and true God? You might say, I'm not sure that's legitimate. I think you might have a point. You might say, that's a fascinating way of handling that text. And I would agree with you. But we're looking at Spurgeon's representative ministry. And this is not unusual in the way that he, he handles the scriptures. He doesn't do this all the time by any means, but he's not afraid to do it. So taking that all into account, the text, he says, enables me to speak on three points, a fact acknowledged, a duty recognized, and a course of action prescribed. So the fact acknowledged is that we have maintenance from the king's palace the duty recognized is that it's not appropriate for us to see the king's dishonor or allow his name to be trampled. And thirdly, then, we have sent and certified the king is the proper course of action. And as we've said, Spurgeon's going to lift those principles, take them across and apply them to the people of God in relation to our God and king. So then we must acknowledge a very gracious fact we have maintenance from the king's palace. And Spurgeon then unpacks this uh, in various ways so that we understand the mercies which we have received. He begins by pointing out that this is true of all God's people in all respects, that we ought to be abundantly ready to acknowledge the fact that we have been fed from both the, the upper and the lower springs. You have known what poverty has meant, and then there has been to you a particular sweetness, a peculiar sweetness in the daily bread, which in answer to prayer has been sent to you. Although we do not drink of the water from the rock or find the manna lying at our tent door every, every morning, yet the providence of God produces for us quite the same results. And we have been fed and satisfied. And at any rate, many of us in looking back can say, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. His first point is that uh, especially in temporal things, we have been supplied with what we need and that our very need at times has provided the, the backdrop to the, the brightness and the blessing of, of God's mercies towards us. But then in spiritual things, he goes on, our continual experience of the king's bounty has been most notable. We have a new life and therefore we have new wants and new hunger and a new thirst. And God has maintained us out of his own palace as to this new life of ours. 
O beloved, we have had great hunger at times after heavenly things, but he has satisfied our mouth with good things, and our youth has been renewed like the eagles. We have had huge wants, bottomless deeps of need we have had, and yet, great God, the treasures of your grace have been everlasting minds, deep as our helpless miseries were, and boundless as our sins. That's a sort of a paraphrase of a hymn, if I remember correctly. Uh, but also notice how Spurgeon shifts from direct address to the people to direct address to God in the space of a couple of sentences. He's got this constant awareness of these two audiences, if you will, his human congregation to whom he's speaking, but also the living God before whom he speaks and in whose presence they are hearing. So he says, again, this uh, spiritual blessing, our shoes have been iron and brass, and as our days, so has our strength been. Up till this moment, we have found that underneath us are the everlasting arms. In looking back upon all the way wherein the Lord our God has led us, we can sing of the beginning of it, we can sing of the middle of it, and we believe we shall sing of the end of it, for all through we have been maintained out of the king's palace. And then he asks the question, where else could we have been maintained from? To, to whom else would we have turned? As to spiritual things, to whom could we go but unto him who has been so good to us? What empty wells ministers are if we look to them? If we look to their master, then the rain also fills the pools, and we find that there is supply in the preached word for our consolation. But there's no help for the child of God should his heavenly father shut the granary door. If out of the king's palace there came no portions of meat in due season, we might lay us down and die of despair. Who could hold us up but God? Who could guide us but God? Who could keep us from falling into perdition but God? Who could from hour to hour supply our desperate wants but God? He says that's why then we need to understand that we have had our maintenance. We've been supplied or provided for from the king's palace. And while we turn over this very sweet thought, and really here Spurgeon seems to be not so much developing uh, a theme methodically, but almost these seed thoughts that are bubbling up uh, in his preparation, or perhaps even to some extent in the pulpit. It's not that it's without order. You can hear some of that order, temporal things, spiritual things. Then we're asking, where else could such blessings have come from? And now we've got to turn our, our thoughts to another thread, but he's he's pulling these things around uh, and trying to give us almost a, a kaleidoscopic sense of blessing. He wants us next to remember that our maintenance from the king's palace has cost his majesty dear. He has not fed us for nothing. Let us bless and magnify our bounteous God, whose infinite favour has supplied our wants. How? In his Son, Jesus Christ. We've been given the choicest jewel of heaven. While he spares nothing for us, but gives everything to us, let us not meanly keep back anything from him, I mean, uh, ungenerously. With such a generous God, generosity seems to be so natural that it ought to be spontaneous. The highest, the most ardent form of service would seem to be but a trifling recompense for the immense expense which the Lord has been at in supporting us these many years." And so he moves then to application. May I ask you to think over the kind of portion and maintenance you have had from the king's palace. Think about it. And now he's developing this point. We've had a bountiful supply. 
Our imagination could not have conceived greater wealth than is ours in the covenant of grace, for all things are yours, the gift of God, God being ours, the infinite is ours, the omniscient is ours, the omnipotent is ours. Oh, what a bountiful portion we have because we have God himself. And that bountiful supply is an unfailing portion. He says, I remember once trying to speak of the great goodness of God in the pulpit when my venerable grandfather, who is now in heaven, was sitting behind me and he pulled my coattail and bade me stop for he thought that he could talk upon that better than I could. And indeed he could because of his deep experience of the faithfulness of the living God. Uh, If you uh, don't know the story, basically Spurgeon and his grandfather ended up tag-teaming this sermon. Spurgeon had arrived a little bit late, if I remember, uh, and his grandfather, who was presiding, had started the address. Uh, When he got there, he handed over to Spurgeon, told him how far he'd got, what his points had been so far. Spurgeon began preaching, and then there was these points in the sermon where uh, Grandpa Spurgeon was tugging at at Spurgeon's coattails and saying, now, young man, I know more about that than you do. Let me take a turn back again. Spurgeon, remembering that, says, it's a great delight and benefit to younger men to hear their grey-headed sires stand up and say what they have known and what they have proved of God's eternal goodness. So that bountiful supply, that unfailing supply, says Spurgeon, has also ennobled us. That is, it's lifted us up. We've been supported from nothing less than the king's palace, the greatest of all privileges to be living upon the bounty of the king of kings. And he says that's a reason for good cheer and great expectation when we have such a soul-satisfying portion in God. A soul that gets what God gives him has quite as much as he can hold and as much as he can want. He has got a portion that might well excite envy. And so he says, Be content now with your brown bread and your hard fare for a little while, for soon you shall eat the delicacies of angels. Yes, and by faith you do even now feast upon the fat things full of marrow and the wines on the lees well refined, which your God sends to you from the king's palace. So rejoice, dear brothers, if any of you are downcast tonight, he says, for our maintenance is from the king's palace, and what can we want more? And then he quotes this beautiful hymn, Father, I wait your daily will, you shall divide my portion still, grant me on earth what seems you best, till death and heaven reveal the rest. This then is something to be fully acknowledged with what he calls lively interest and devout gratitude. He means our personal investment, and devout gratitude, we have maintenance from the king's palace. Secondly, then, that leads us to a duty recognised. If we've been so maintained from the divine king's palace, it is not right for us to allow the king's dishonour. We ought to be standing up for the honour of God. By every sense of propriety, we are bound not to see God dishonoured by ourselves. Spurgeon says, begin at home. Are you doing anything that dishonours your God, professing Christian? Anything at home? Anything in your daily avocation, your calling? Anything in the way of conducting your business? Anything in your conversation? Anything in your actions? Anything in your reading? Anything in your writing? Anything in your speaking? We'd add today, anything in your watching? Anything in your scrolling? Anything in your page flicking? Anything in your commenting? anything in in the the realm of social media, anything in the realm of digital engagement that dishonours God. The Lord grant us grace 
to feel that if we are maintained from the king's palace, it is not right for us to cause the king dishonour. Let it not be said that the king's name took damage from us. So he says, if you've begun at home, then think not first, not only of yourself, which you should do first, but then also of those who dwell under your roof and live in your own house. And he says, if you're a parent or a master, think of this. Do not tolerate anything in those over whom you have control that would bring dishonor to God. Remember Eli, he did not restrain his sons and they behaved shamefully. They were the minister's sons, and because they were not restrained, therefore God overthrew Eli's house and did such terrible things that the ears of him that hears of them might well tingle. Joshua said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now we cannot impart to our children new hearts, but we can see to it that there shall be nothing within our gates that is derogatory to the religion of Jesus Christ. I charge you, see to it but you cannot control your children, you say. Then the Lord have mercy upon you. It is your business to do it and you must do it or else you will soon find that they will control you and no one knows what judgment will come from God upon those who suffer sin or allow sin in children and servants to go unrebuked. This is a word in season to our present age. The number of Uh, Christian parents who will say to their pastors, you can't expect us to handle these things. It is not possible to control our children. And with that kind of bewilderment and despair and indulgence often bred in from the very earliest years, uh, you end up with these children who, rather than being righteously and lovingly governed, are unrighteously and selfishly governing their parents and governing in principle the whole household. And Spurgeon says, parents, that is your business. My friends, there is a there is a way back uh, that God is able to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. But I would plead with you pastorally, begin early, training your children to know that they are under your loving government and that you are responsible, having been given authority by God, to manage your household in such a way that while they are under your roof and living on uh, of your salary, that these children are under your government. He says then, not only those who are under your house, under your roof and in your house, but the same holy jealousy should animate us among those with whom we have influence. So, for example, in the church. It is the duty of every church to try as far as it can to guard the honour and dignity of King Jesus against unworthy persons who would intrude themselves into the congregation of the saints of those who are called and chosen and faithful. We are deceived and always shall be, he mourns, for the church never was infallible, but still let no negligence of our practice supplement the infirmity of our judgment. In other words, you need to make sure that only True believers, as far as you can properly discern it, are allowed into the fellowship of the church. To receive, he says, into our membership persons of unhallowed life, that's unholy life, unchaste, unrighteous, of licentious life and lax doctrine, such as know not the truth as it is in Jesus, would be to betray the trust with which Christ has invested us. That must not be, and every church member is bound to do his best to guard the church against that which would render her unclean in the sight of God. 
Then he says, uh, developing this in measure, we're also bound always to bear our protest against false doctrine. He acknowledges he's sometimes accused of saying sharp things. He says, the charge doesn't come home to my conscience with very great power, because if anybody said I spoke smooth things, I think it would oppress me a great deal more. He goes on, as long as there are evils in this world, God's ministers are bound to protest against them. That man who, as he goes through the world, can say, hail fellow, well met with everybody and extol the modern Diana of charity, universal charity, false charity, charity toward the false. That man, when he comes to stand before his maker, will find it hard to give in his account. In these days when nobody believes anything, when everybody is subscribed to the belief that black is white and white black and colours are nothing at all but imaginary distinctions, it is time that somebody should believe something and a little sharpness of speech might not only be excused but commended if we had but men who spoke what they did know and testified honestly to the truth which they had received. So he says, not just everyone present, but every Englishman, every Protestant, above all, every Christian, let them denounce priestcraft of every sort and in every church, whether among Romanists, Anglicans or dissenters, down with it. There is one priest only and he is in heaven and none of us have any power to offer any sacrifice for sin or any power to absolve our fellow men. He says this is a profanity that should appall us. We should speak out against it because it dishonours our God and King. I remember a remark of a Unitarian doctor, he says. Uh, that's uh, somebody who doesn't hold to Trinitarian doctrine, the idea that uh, the, the, the truth that there is a uh, one God in three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. The Unitarian would deny that. And this Unitarian doctor, says Spurgeon, was eminently correct in one thing. He said of a certain Calvinist who was accused of speaking sharply against Unitarians, quite right, and so he ought, because if the Calvinist be right, the Unitarian is not a Christian at all. But if the Unitarian be right, the Calvinist is an idolater, because he worships one who is a man and is not the Son of God. Spurgeon then applies this. If what we hold be true, it is not possible that the man who denies the deity of Christ can be a Christian, nor can there be for him a hope of salvation. That would be one of the main thrusts of the kind of Unitarianism with which Spurgeon is dealing, that it would deny then the deity of the Son. He deliberately refuses the only way of escape from the wrath to come who does that. I can understand a man getting to heaven as a Roman Catholic, notwithstanding all his errors, he goes on, because he believes in the, in the divinity of Christ and relies on the expiatory sacrifice of his death with whatever superstitions his creed may be overlaid. But I cannot understand, nor do I believe, that any man will ever enter those pearly gates who, in doubting or discrediting the deity of our blessed Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, renounces the sheet anchor of our most holy faith and dares to face his maker without a counsellor, without an advocate, without a plea for mercy. It's time we said so and spoke out plainly. Spurgeon says away with that charity that would would basically say that nothing really matters, that there is no truth, that there's no final truth, that there's your truth or my truth. No, he says, courtesies are thrown away upon antagonists whose cause is treason. And so he says, I want you to defend 
this fundamental doctrine of our most holy faith, that the Lord Jesus Christ has laid down his life to make atonement for the sins of his people. So he's moving now, the person of Christ, now the work of Christ. What do you think? Is there no fact? Is there no truth? Is the word of God yes and no? Has it come to this, that it's to be shuffled like a pack of cards or shaped like a nose of wax as every man may please? Oh no, by the ever-living God there is truth somewhere and that truth we will find out if we can and having found it, we will hold it fast. Let us in the day of battle use our standard and if our arm be smitten off, we hope the standard will not fall but that others will be found to hold it up as there were in the brave days of yore when our fathers burned at the stake for these things or went to the galleys or perished amidst the Alps sooner than the truth of God's own word should be without witnesses among the sons of men. Bear none of these things in your hearts with tolerance, but hold fast to the things which you have been taught and hold them fast in faith and love to Christ Jesus. Then he goes on a couple more brief points under this uh, second concern that we not allow God to be dishonored if we've been supplied from his table. We must not allow the Lord to be dishonored by a neglect of his ordinances. Take care that you follow them well, for this is the way that he did when he fulfilled all righteousness. Be baptized in his name. Follow him to the communion table. Again, do not be uh, satisfied with a general decline of his church, but bestir yourselves. May this church never settle on its lees or fall into slumber as it grows older. May God grant it may grow more earnest. May there be ever here regiments of stalwart men who shall fight for King Jesus and not be ashamed. And may the church be full of life and vigor till Christ himself shall come. When we sleep with our fathers, may there be found others better than we are to maintain the cause and crown rights of King Jesus. And then how can we tolerate it that so many should dishonor Christ by rejecting his gospel? We cannot prevent their doing so, he says, but we can weep for them. We can pray for them. We can plead for them. We can make it uncomfortable for them to reflect that believers are loving them and yet they are not loving the Saviour. If you are fed from the king's palace, it is not meet, not right, that you should see the king's dishonour with dry eyes. If you hear a man swearing in the streets, mourn and lament it. If you see the Sabbath desecrated, grieve over it. If you behold drunkenness, do not laugh at it. If you hear lascivious songs, do not smile at them. Everything that is evil should be painful to a believer, and it ought to be an incessant sorrow to us that souls are perishing. Did Christ or sinners weep, and shall our cheeks be dry? Privileged as you are then, beloved, you ought to love your master so that the slightest word against him should provoke your spirit to holy jealousy. Doesn't that make you think, how much do we wink at? How much do we overlook? How much do we shrug off? How much do we say is simply the spirit of the age? Spurgeon says, no, you should feel it and feel it deeply. Then his last point is this, a course of action pursued. Therefore, says the text, have we sent and certified the king? How shall we do that? Well, says Spurgeon, it becomes us well to go and tell the Lord about these things. He doesn't know? Aren't things all open to him? Yes, but it's the holy exercise of the saints to report to the Lord the sins and the sorrows they observe among the people, the griefs they feel and the grievances they complain of, 
to spread before him the blasphemies they've heard and appeal to him concerning the menaces with which they are threatened. This then ought to be the constant pleading of the church. Shall not God avenge his own elect which cried day and night unto him? Oh, it ought to be day and night cry about all this, the sin of this London. Oh, if we felt it, it would weigh us down. The drunkenness of London, the lust of London, the oppression of London, the wickedness of every shape that reeks as from a dunghill from this great city of God. And can you not say the same about your village and your town and your city, wherever you may be? Oh God, he asks, will you always bear it? Will you not rise and change all this? Will you not give power to your gospel that a gracious reformation may be made? So tell the Lord about it. Certify the king. And after those people had certified the king, they took care to plead with him. As I've told you already, he says, and he's back now in the text, they apprised the Lord that in the, or the king rather, that the city of Jerusalem was a very troublesome city and therefore it ought not to be rebuilt. If that's how those men could go to their king, says Spurgeon, how ought you to plead with God, plead with God, plead with God? That praying is poor shift that is not made up of pleading. Bring forth your reasons, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong arguments. Oh, what prayers were those of John Knox when he seemed to say to God, save Scotland for this reason, for that reason, for another reason, for yet one more reason, the number of his motives still multiplying with the fervour of his heart. And that's how we ought to plead, for the honour and the glory of our Lord. It is not right that we should see the king's dishonour. It is due to him that we should seek his glory. And as we often say, when the emphasis and the thrust of the sermon is toward the saints, Spurgeon will not close without a word for those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. He says, I want every one of you to know what it was to be maintained from the king's palace, but some of you have never eaten the king's bread and you'll be banished from the king's presence if you die as you are. The king is always ready to receive his rebel rebel subjects, a God ready to pardon. So, Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little, and then blessed are all that put their trust in him. That is the way of reconciliation, to put your trust in him. And if you do, you are reconciled. You'll be maintained out of his palace, and you should then live to his glory. If you want to say that's a great sermon from the wrong text, I'll leave that with you. I hope you feel the force of it. And I hope that we won't just take these kinds of sermons from Spurgeon or anyone else as a kind of uh, spiritual sadomasochism where uh, we're just congratulating ourselves that we've uh, been given a whipping from the pulpit. The whole point of a sermon like this is to stir our souls with a profound sense of the mercy and the kindness of God toward us and therefore to ask, Lord, what can I render to you for all your benefits? I hope this sermon will help you to do that and I hope you'll carry away the the force of these things in your souls until you join us, God willing, next time as we look at Sermon 1107, a call to worship. But until then, may God help us to remember that we've been maintained from the divine king's palace and therefore it is not right that we should allow his name, his word, his house, his work to be dishonoured by us or any others. 
May God help us to live accordingly and bless us indeed.